My name is Enrique Cerna, and I'm the senior correspondent for CrossCut and KCTS 9. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to uh, this session, uh, focusing on deadly force and Seattle's changing police culture. Uh, let me introduce our panelists. I'm very pleased to have them here today. Jennifer Henderson is a licensed mental health counselor. And they can raise, raise her hand as I go through here so we acknowledge who they are. She's also a registered art therapist. She has a private practice in Seattle's South End neighborhood where she focuses mainly on women's issues and racial identity. Rial Johnson is the NAACP and uh, Snohomish Criminal Justice Chair. He uh, was the former campaign manager for De-Escalate Washington I-940. Uh, Officer Kevin Stuckey is here and he has been with Seattle Police Department for over 20 years. He is the Guild's president and a commissioner for the Seattle uh, Community Police Commission. Uh, also, a vocal advocate for peace issues. Very pleased to have the Reverend Harriet Walden. She's co-founder. And she has a following here. Uh, she's co-founder of Mothers for Police Accountability. She's also the co-chair of the Seattle P uh, Community Police Commission. And our moderator is Stephen Shea. He's the news editor at The Stranger. Yes, give him a welcoming welcome there. As a journalist, he's largely focused on criminal justice issues. He's covered the 2014 protests in Ferguson, Missouri after the police shooting of Michael Brown, as well as the fatal police shootings of uh, Charlena Lyles here in Seattle last summer. Uh, we'd also like to uh, take a minute here to thank our sponsors, with whom uh, none of this would be possible today, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and our race and social justice track sponsor, the Seattle Foundation. Please give them a round of applause. We appreciate their, their support. And Stephen. Take it away. Thank you for coming out today. So in 2010, um, the fatal shooting of John T. Williams, a First Nations woodcarver, um, prompted the Department of Justice to launch an investigation of the Seattle Police Department. The result was that a determination that Seattle officers had engaged in a pattern of unconstitutional use of force um, too often resorting to using excessive force um, and other findings as well. In 2011, Seattle entered into a consent decree with the Department of Justice. And after many years, this year, uh, a judge has found that the department is in full and effective compliance with that decree. Um, but that does not mean the reform process is over. Um, there's a two-year monitoring period um, that just began, um, and uh, there's more work to be done. Um, and so the question and the topic of today's panel is Seattle's poli changing police culture and deadly use of force. And I want to start with that first part, um, the police culture. Um, and this is a question for Reverend Walden, since you've been working on these issues for decades, since you founded Mothers for Police Accountability in 1990, I believe. Um, have you noticed since then a change in the police culture? And if so, um, what has that change looked like? Well, uh, there's been a fundamental change uh, uh, in, in the culture in Seattle. Uh, uh, it's been gradual over time. Um, when I started Mothers in 1990, uh, the, um, the element, the, the climate was such that they were uh, 
kids couldn't even hardly cross the street uh, without being stopped by the police. Uh, and um, they were uh, made to take the position and guns was put into their heads. And uh, that was the element. That's why uh, my kids got stopped uh, in front of their own house. Uh, and two of my kids got beat up. Uh, they didn't get a kid. They didn't get brutalized, but they did get beat up. And uh, as a result of that, I started Mothers for Police Accountability. It was Mothers Against Police Harassment then. And over time, we've changed the name because we do more than, it was more than harassment. Uh, and, and it was about uh, accountability. And, uh, and so over time, I have seen uh, there is a difference in the Seattle Police Department. Is it perfect? I mean, we have not reached Nirvana. I mean, and I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that. But in terms of working with the community, uh, I, there, there's been a lot of changes as far as doing outreach and wanting to work with the community in a lot of different areas, uh, uh, you know, mainly that, uh, that I've been able to see uh, over, to, uh, this is our 27 year. So if I had a, a child, a baby 27 years ago, uh, that child would be grown. So uh, yeah, it's been a long time doing this work and I much better relationships uh, to the community, but it's still evolving. I mean, it's not like baking a cake. It's still evolving. Thank you. Um, Officer Stuckey, uh, you represent the rank and file of the Seattle Police Department. Um, the same question to you. Um, have you noticed a change in the police culture since um, you know you've been an officer for how many years? I've been an officer for twenty. I've been an officer for twenty-three years. Um, well, first, let me start off by saying that although I represent the rank and file officer of the Seattle Police Department, um, I also represent uh, members in this community because this is my community as well. I will tell you that um, my personal feelings are that change is in perception. And so I might be the wrong person to ask. The, the people should be asking are the people who actually are being deal, dealt, the police deal with every day. If you had interaction with the police officer, then how do you feel? Um, I can tell you that I've seen things. I've seen things within our, our management and within our policies that have changed and the training in which we get to um, how we interact with people. Uh, one of the th trainings that we've done recently um, actually was put on by the C Community Police Commission, which is how to interact with people. Um, it saddens me that it took all these things to happen for us to realize that we started to need to change some things. But the change has begun. I don't um, like to use the word reform because to me this is a, a living thing that has to be continuous. I don't think we will ever be done because policing in the 21st century has to be about best practices all the time. That doesn't mean that reform kind of implies that at some point we'll be done. I don't think that's what we should be looking for. We should be talking about continuing and constantly changing and adapting to what the community needs are. Okay, uh, let me rephrase the question um, a little bit. You know, you mentioned that the community is really the one to answer whether there has been a change in the police culture. Um, but as uh, the representative of the union, have you, um, what has been your, uh, what has been your experience speaking with officers and their willingness to um, adapt to the uh, requirements laid out by the consent decree and you know the demands of the community well those demands are actually um, let me f correct you a little bit those demands are are laid out by actually community 
It was Community Police Commission who put forth the accountability legislation and actually rewrote several of the policies in which we're nationally recognized for. When you talk about bias-free policing, you talk about a use of force policies, all those policies came out of the Community Police Commission. So we actually had community members taking part in changing police practice. And that and in turn, when you get in and when everyone is at the table, everyone feels like they can have some buy-in. So what has happened is, instead of having a policy change, we are starting to see culture change. Because when you have buy-in and think this is where we need to be going, that's how you get things done. And that's what we've been doing here. Um, I can't speak to other parts of the country, but I know that the Community Police Commission here in Seattle has made an extreme effort to include everyone so that there's no one is missed. Okay. Um, Jennifer, I know that um, in your practice you've spoken, um, you've treated people who um, you know, have experienced police violence or are exposed to police violence. Um, can you tell, tell us just a little bit more about your practice? I have a private psychotherapy practice in Columbia City, and I work mainly with African-American women and women of color who are navigating issues of racial identity, depression, and anxiety. Okay. And um, so when we talk about police culture, um, you know, we can talk about it in so many different ways, what it means from within the department. Um, I'm wondering... Uh, when I'm wondering what your take is on the word police culture um, and what your understanding of that is based on your experience with your clients. Well, I've worked in uh, juvenile court previously for several years and now in my private practice I frequently do mental health assessments on clients who've been brutalized by the police and also see clients in ongoing therapy who are dealing with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, often related to those interactions or uh, interactions with police and police brutality. Um, there is a, a cumulative effect meant regarding mental health in terms of um, the symptoms that are experienced, high anxiety, looking behind one's back to see who's coming up on them. There might be physical symptoms of headache, stomach aches, trouble sleeping. There's a great deal of emotional and mental health symptoms that are related to these interactions with police. Okay. Um, so just uh, this summer, um, there was the fatal shooting, the fatal police shooting of Charlena Lyles, um, who was a pregnant mother um, in Sandpoint. She was shot in her apartment um, during a uh, during a call regarding a burglary. Um, uh, the Force Review Board recently found that the two officers who um, entered her apartment that day um, and shot her, uh, had no viable alternatives, um, uh, meaning a taser, um, a baton, or some other less lethal takedown, um, and that the incident was uh, consistent with training and policy. Um, uh, it's worth noting that Charlene Lyles had a uh, mental health flag on her um, uh, 
on her report before the police officers went into her apartment that day. And um, the federal judge who's overseeing the consent decree uh, has uh, brought this case up as an example of the work that's still to be done. Um, and so uh, the question for uh, Reverend Walden is, um, what does the, um, what, what does this shooting mean for the police reform process? And um, how come uh, the, how come uh, we're still having police shootings like this um, and while we're in full and effective compliance with this consent decree at the same time? Well, um, that's a difficult question um, and uh, I always want to give respect to uh, Charlena's family uh, for what they've gone through, and I, I, my condolence at all times. Uh, it was uh, it, uh, it was uh, it, the department said it was uh, in uh, policy shooting uh, for us as women, and I speak specifically as a black woman. Uh, I, that uh, it was uh, out of all the years that I've been doing police accountability, this was one of the hardest cases that ever come uh, through uh, that I'd ever been involved in. I wasn't involved in it uh, uh, as much as other people, but uh, as, a, uh, as a mother, uh, and to know that uh, she had mental health issues, um, and uh, those issues uh, did not raise to the level of her being able to uh, get the, maybe the help that she needed. Uh, the crisis intervention, uh, idea and that 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 whole uh, crisis intervention did not uh, wasn't available it did not save her life uh, it has worked in this city over 6,000 times but it did not work for her you don't you don't you tweak policy on the ones where it did not work something badly went wrong uh, uh, in my opinion uh, uh, in that shooting uh, and for me as a woman I uh, and uh, Knowing her statue, um, it seems to me that at some point we have to look at other methods of takedown. Uh, that's such a harsh word. Other methods of being uh, methods to being able to uh, de-escalate. Uh, and although one of the officers was trained uh, with the CIT, he didn't have his equipment. So I want to know: Was he cited? Did he have? Uh, did he get any time off uh, uh, for not? Uh, he didn't follow policy. I mean, once you're trained, you should always have your equipment with you, and he did not have his equipment. Uh, and uh, so you're referring to um, a taser, right? That's he right, was a taser. Trained to yeah, hold right, a taser. Taser, and uh, um, and and so. And it, going forward in the 21st century, what can we do uh, around training when uh, when these kind of situations will around, uh, come up? I'm sure this is not the only one that's going to come up in, in, in the scheme of time, but I hope that um, we can actually have some real lesson learned here. I mean, maybe the training academy. I mean, you know, talking. Maybe, maybe they could introduce some other kinds of training. And for me, in my own personal question, I would like to find out why. You know, that's on my mind. 
what happened if the, if one of the officers decided that they were not going to be within policy, that he was going to do something creative to be able to de-escalate the situation that might have been outside of policy? Would that officer still have a job? See, I mean, and those are the questions that I would want to be looking at. Because I think that there was another creative method that could have been used, uh, and maybe they didn't see it at that time, but I'm just speaking as a female, as a mother. Uh, and as a black woman, I have been, uh, my, um, I, I've been really affected by this shooting, as affected as I was when the uh, man went into the um, Mother Emanuel Church down in North Carolina. There's a few shootings that shake me to my core, and this one did. Officer Stuckey, uh, would you like to say anything about the shooting? or? Um, and the way that it's affected the police department? Um. Well, I'll speak to kind of what Reverend Walden was saying and kind of what I was saying earlier uh, and, and what the question you asked about the fact that the federal judge said this actually something that means something. What it says to me is that we can't, this word reform, again, implies that will be done. What this happened, what this incident showed us is that we're gonna always be working on this. There's always going to be something. We have to be, we have to have the ability to adapt. Um, I don't know if you can put that in policy, but like Reverend Walden said, it has to be, we have to find a way that, to find a solution that doesn't result in someone losing their life. I don't know if it's possible, but if we're not working towards that goal, then we're wrong. Okay. Um, so the question, uh, so the panel, uh, the title of the panel um, is Seattle's Changing Police Culture and Deadly Force. Um, so I want to talk about deadly force. Um, the, the Seattle Times in 2015 found that of 213 police killings, um, only one police officer uh, was criminally charged. Um, and those are police killings that range beyond fatal shootings. Um, is this possible in a system that's working? Um, we'll start with you, Rial. In a system that's working, yes, but it's not working, obviously. Um, that one prosecution was in my county, in Snohomish, and um, that was because the officer said he was going to kill the person, and he did, because you have to prove malice in this state. So I've lived all around the country. Um, I play, you know, I've played on nine professional football teams in my career. So I've lived everywhere in this country. And I can say uh, Seattle is probably one of the better police departments that I've dealt with because I get stopped and profiled way higher rate other places in the country than I do here. But the lesser of two, you know, lesser of many evils is still evil. There are still people dying. In this Charlie and Lyle's case, if the police did not show up, Charlie will still be alive. And that's the simple truth. Um, Charlene was one of three pregnant women that was shot in the last two years in this state. There were two tribal women that were shot as well. And so these things are happening, and the numbers have gone up in the last year. So something is not being fixed. And so to sit there and, you know, we can say that we're working on it, we're working on it, but the thing is the changes obviously aren't working. Um, and because I think police in general are just getting the input from too many of the wrong places. They're not looking to the community enough, they're looking within themselves. 
And when a problem is with me, I can't always fix it myself. I have to, you know, I have to look at, I have to find counsel and get things, look for other people's advice to fix something within myself. Um, so, I, and I commend that there's efforts being made, but the thing is, like, there's still a problem. And there really has to be a real talk within, within themselves and with, with actual with the community to get the right input so they can actually make that reform because the shootings are still happening. And there's, if you look at the cases, all the, the, the shootings, almost 80% of the time when these shootings, there wasn't a crime being committed. So instead, you know, I worked on de-escalate and half of de-escalating is just not escalating the situation in the first place. When police show up and they make the situation worse. So that, I think that's, you know, kind of the core of it. It's just, you know, overall, it starts from the beginning. How do you approach people? How do you do, like, like Officer Stucky said, that's a good approach to say, how do you deal with people better? How do you be more involved in the community so you can actually relate to people instead of there's that big wall that, that just bad interaction and just that hostility just always escalates and escalates and escalates and then you end up with all these deadly shootings that we see um, and then also for every shooting you see there's hundreds of beatings and harassments and intimidations and false arrests and and that's just you know those those just, it's just a big accumulation of what we see in, in not just in the city but around the state and um, so there's a core fundamental change that has to happen and has to happen not just with it, well, from within, but we have, we have to be able to be at the door to be able to give that input as well. Okay. On that topic, can you explain to the audience a little bit about I-940 and what it would do? Uh, Initiative 940's main goal is to, you know, just to lessen the violence. Um, it's about, you know, giving police better tools to... Um, de-escalate situations and also be able to create a better accountability system for police that do break that trust and use deadly force. Um, the main goal of de-escalate, of course, is to have less shootings. We would rather have you know, less shootings, less people dying than more prosecutions. It's that simple. We had over like 42 shootings last year, which is the highest in the last eight, nine, last decade, you know, last decade before that. I would rather see that number cut in half and still have no prosecutions than to keep that number the same and have more prosecutions. That is the goal of that. So, but the thing is, if there's no accountability, then there's no trust. Right now, the police are fully immune to going, you know, to to prosecution or, or convi especially conviction here in the state. I mean, customer service agents are, are more accountable. Um, you know, my, my uncle went to jail for two years for a car accident. This is just it's just like the 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 community is held way more accountable than police are right now. And that has to change, because we always say police are supposed to be in a higher standard, they're supposed to be trained for this thing, but they're not held to that, that level of accountability that we are. I mean, I have to be, I'm accountable for my actions. If I do one thing, if I cause a death, I'm, I, I, I have to face trial. That does not happen on the other side. So, um, but the thing is, the number one thing to create that is we want to create less situations that have less violence overall. And just building that bridge between the police and bill and, and communities to be able to get a better understanding. That's the biggest step that we have to take. Uh, can you explain specifically um, about the? Um, I, my understanding is there's a few parts of the legislation. Um, th one of the big pieces being um, raising or lowering uh, the the standard for prosecuting police who use um, deadly force. I won't say lowering, I just say changing. Right now it's impossible. So this just makes it possible. Um, right now you have to prove malice. You have to prove what a cop was thinking in this situation to ever even go to court. So that gets rid of, and just puts on the rest standard for the rest of the country, which is hard enough as it is. I mean, we literally see 
video after video after video of people getting shot in the back where, you know, or where they weren't committing a crime. And those cops aren't getting held accountable either. So, so we're, we're not, we're not, it's not asking for much. But the, the main goal of the escalation is, is of Initiative 940 is to give police better tools, more mental health training, more ways to deal with situations that they probably wouldn't deal with, getting more input from mental health professionals like Ms. You know, Jennifer here. And so, um, that, and this is a statewide issue. Uh, it also creates better process for independent investigations because, um, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, I've never found myself guilty of investigating myself. So it's just like, that's just the whole process that we have now. So there's no, that, that's just, that's a whole other path of accountability when people that are protecting each other are, are responsible for the investigations, it's never gonna happen. Um, and also just bring, and, and also the very important, that doesn't get talked about much, is how de-escalate involves bringing more people from the community to the table for training and input. Um, people from the black and brown communities, uh, LGBTQ communities, tribal communities, um, formerly incarcerated people well, uh, get to come to the table and provide their input on training on, to give police better input on how to deal with us. Um, and that, that is what Initiative 940 is for. It is truly to build a bridge and, and help that interaction because it's, it's, it's about right now, you cannot say things are wrong. I'm sure there's efforts being made to make it better, but it's not getting better. That's the fact. Okay. Um, Officer Stuckey, uh, the Seattle Police Officers Guild, opposes 940. Uh, why? Well, let me first say that um, I'm all about building bridges. Um, I'm the first one to say that um, my profession has gotten it wrong because we spent too much time building fences instead of building bridges. So if this was about, if I-940 was about building bridges, was about actual uh, training, and if those were the things that it was about, then I'd, I'd signed up for it myself. The reality is that there are some other things in there. Now, I'm not here to argue or to do a point counterpoint with anything, because I think that would be a waste of everyone's time. But I, I'll just say that for every video that we show, I can show another video. We are living in an extremely violent society. We are, this is a direct reflection of how dangerous our society is becoming. Now, we have to do better. I'm all, I, the last thing I want to have is a 16-year-old male who looks just like me, afraid to come ask me for help because of the uniform that I'm wearing. And the reality is that's what's going on today. Um, one of the things that I would kind of counterpoint on is I can show up in uniform and that immediately escalates the situation because of who I represent. And I have been there. I'm the one that called for help. And when I get there, just because I showed up, people get ramped up. So there has to be some kind of training on how to get that back down. And we have started that training. But like Mr. Johnson said, it's an, an effort is being done, but there are things that can, needs to continue to be done. We'll never, ever, I believe in my lifetime, get to anything that's perfect. But the whole goal is supposed to get out there. We are changing and reaching out there. But the reality is, when I said earlier about you have to ask the community how they feel, is because for every person that I reach out and speak to, there's another 40 who had a negative interaction with a police officer, and no matter what I say, that's not going to change. So we can't just stop here. I don't think I-940 is going to get to the point of what everyone wants it to. But that's my opinion. I think that this is got, they got the signatures that's going to go into the ballot and it'll be for the community to decide if this is something that they want. I just... From my personal opinion and the people I represent, I don't think that's going to get what they asked for, which was less negative interactions with the police. 
Spock's press release um, in which it came out to oppose 940 um, stated that the, quote, true purpose of the initiative is to make it easier to prosecute officers. Um, and my understanding is that's the component that Spog opposes. That, that, is, a, that is a piece of it. That's, that's just a, that's a, uh, a piece of it. The, when we talked about removing malice, the, the, you have to ask yourself the reason why malice was put in. Because if anyone walking down the street, um, you have to prove and, and shoot someone, you have to prove intent. With a police officer, you already know the intent because I'm wearing the gun and the uniform to begin with. Malice was put in all those years ago to actually level the playing field. Because if you already know what my intent is, I'm not saying that's the right law. Because we are an outlier. We're probably, if I'm not mistaken, the only state that, where that exists. But that was... That was the That's reason true. why it was put there. Would you like to respond, Rial? If, if Spog or all the other police unions that oppose 940 want, truly believe that the malice clause is necessary, they would be advocating for it in all 49 other states. But it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous law. And get it the, granted the history of it, it was well-intentioned, but, you know, but it was based on the whole you know, shooting in the back situations that was going on. But... Um, it's just a ridiculous law, and it has to go. Um, it's impossible. It's a barrier that's impossible, and it, cre it creates too much distrust in our community to know that police officers are never going to be held accountable for killing people. Um, we are held accountable for, for all kinds of crimes, way more, especially in the black and brown community. We're way, held way more accountable for our actions than, than, than the rest of the community, especially police. So to, to think that, you know, that it's based solely to prosecute officers um, is just, it's a false narrative because when you are charged or you've taken that oath to protect the community, to not have some kind of accountability in that is just, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's an, it becomes an abuse of power. And we see it over and over and over. And we saw it multiple times last year. And we see it on camera and it's still not happening, right in front of our eyes. And things, and nothing's being held. So, it's just, and it's only designed to happen when those few cases where, where you where the prosecution has to happen. So it's not about you're not going to see 40, 50 officers getting prosecuted. There was 42 shootings. You might you know, there was I could you know maybe only five or six of them need need to be looked in, in in case. So it's not it's not affecting the good police officers that are out there. Um, it's affecting you know and everyone every officer I've talked to said yeah. Granted, there's a few bad cops out there, and it should be full stop after that. There are a few bad cops out there, and we should have a way to hold those cops accountable. Can I have a comment? Please. Yeah, I, I think, too, uh, that the public needs to understand that um, we can charge an officer. It is the conviction that matters. I mean, uh, the Baltimore officers was charged for Freddie Gray, but no one was convicted. And so I don't think we should get confused with charging and conviction. Because the jewelry will be made up of people who always maybe think that the police officers can do no wrong. I, and, so, I, and so I think people need to understand there is a clear difference between charging and getting a conviction. And, uh, I, and, and, and I think we need to understand that. I mean, even in the, um, in the John T. Williams case, 
which the Firearms Review Board said it was a bad shooting. The prosecutor, Dan Satterberg, could have charged in that case. He did not. He had enough facts of that case that he could have charged. But he ch did not charge because he didn't think he could get a conviction. And so I think we need to understand there's two paths there. One is charging, and rightly so. But you got to make sure that the prosecutor vigorously prosecutes the case to be able to get a conviction. Okay. Um, so Seattle has been held up as a model for police reform um, by the Obama White House. Um, and there is um, overwhelming support among the city's leadership for the reform efforts um, and the top brass of the, uh, of the Seattle Police Department as well. Um, but is it truly possible to get to a, uh, no, truly possible to get to the culture change that um, the city wants uh, without the support of the rank and file? I know this kind of touches upon a question that we um, talked about earlier, um, but uh, uh, Officer Stuckey, would you like to take this one? Well, I, again, um, I think Mr. Johnson said it the best. You can try, and there, there's efforts being made, but the reality, it's the proof's in the pudding. Um, we can get everything correct. We are in full confective compliance. Uh, if there's a shooting tomorrow that has negative connotations, people will be at the questioning. And I go back to, yes, there is a change, but this has to be a continuous change. Um, again, I don't think we should even be using the word reform. I would, we should be talking about um, birth, creation, and the continuing process of this, because this is something that has to continue on. Policing in the 21st century requires the ability to adapt, and if you cannot adapt, you cannot be a police officer. Please. From a mental health perspective, I think the responsibility for mental health crises should be removed from the police department. Ideally, money needs to be invested into a crisis team, so that when there's an emergent situation with a person who has mental health issues and a call comes in, that triage worker gathers information, assesses the situation, determines what to do, and then a team goes out to the home to work with that person and their family. And if necessary, if the person is known to be violent or has a weapon, then the police could join them, but they should not be the first responders. And I think it's also crucial for the police department to require ongoing therapy for officers so that they have an ability to process their, their experiences of being, uh, having their life on the line every day at work so that they can explore with the therapist the differences between um, facts and feelings and work through their biases and have that outlet to be more emotionally stable in general. Okay. Um, please. What, what do you think has um, stopped, uh, stopped us from having a therapist for every police officer? I'm sure it's a matter of budget, but also perhaps the value of therapy may not be known 
by the department. There's still a great deal of stigma involved with seeking out mental, mental health support. And we need to work on that stigma so that people can get the help that they need. Uh, if I can just jump in, I have somebody. I, don't, I can't speak for everybody, but um, I actually, and the department actually, if you're involved in any kind of use of force, that um, it's a serious nature that you're, before you can come back to work, you have to actually have met with a therapist and actually get signed off on. But they provide, but if you're correct then, are you taking up on it? And then are we just checking a box? I think those are the things that we really have to start investigating and looking at. Well, uh, 45, just, um, 45 just signed a, a, a bill the other day because it's drama on one side and then it's a sleight of hand on the other side. But he did sign a bill the other day uh, uh, that would give police departments uh, more money for mental health uh, issues. Uh, uh, and that passed the other day. Nobody really knew about it, but so that that's going to be happening. I think the money is going to be coming from the Justice Department, I mean, uh, to be able to go to police departments, and that, that passed. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if it was an executive order, but it was, uh, I did read that the other day that, that that was happening, and it will go to major police departments, you know, especially the large police departments first, probably. It looks like we have a couple audience questions. We have I, about five minutes left. I got to. one thing. I guess when you... Jennifer talk, touched on it's a budget issue, but you know, like I was, I've been in Olympia the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I come up and I see what's being advocated for, and I see, I mean, you see what you know what the police are asking for. They're not asking for more mental health professionals or more mental health help. They're asking for more guns and more car, car you know, newer cars, and more equipment, and you know, more more stuff to use lethal force and deadly force, or you know, protect themselves. So I think that's you know something that really has to be addressed. And like if they you know, they say they want this reform. They can ask for the money for it, but that's not that's not being asked. At least not, that's not being asked by to the city council. It's not being asked by to the to to out, out in Olympia. Um, and I think that's a huge issue that can actually help if there's funding for that stuff because it, it's not being advocated down in there. Um, but I see what's being advocated for and what they push the for, you know farthest. And it's not reform or not changes. It's they, there's hard advocation to keep things the same out there, and that's and that's a problem. Okay, we have a few audience questions and a little bit of time. Um, so we'll get right to them. Uh, the f this first one is for anybody who wants to take it. How do you change this feeling that the police think it's us versus them and embrace, quote, protect and serve among their members? Even just speeding tickets or not paying a bus fare feels like tense, hostile, dangerous situations with a strong power differential. Well, I think there's a movement, especially here, uh, with Sue Raw uh, uh, and, and the new training uh, from more and from a warrior to a guardian uh, training, and and this old model came out of there was a Daryl Gates model that uh, that, that swept policing uh, uh, many many years ago, where uh, they did see the community uh, uh, as the other, and they were considered an occupying force, and so over time that idea, I can only speak for Seattle, I've seen how that idea is changing. I mean, and granted, we absolutely have to acknowledge that, the, uh, that a lot of people gone into policing uh, who have great biases, I mean, uh, as 
as I, uh, as Riley said, uh, is no sanction for them. And so it's a lot of people who have gone into policing who uh, actually have a lot of bias. But with the Seattle Police Department working on bias uh, uh, and, and having policies around bias and bias policing, I think that we're well on the road. The other bias that happens here in Seattle is white people call the police on black people and lie. And I, you know, mothers would like to find out how much money is being used for policing uh, 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 when, 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 a, when a car is dispensed to go somewhere uh, and this white person has lied on this black person and know they're lying. Uh, that's a bias too. And that's a bias that's rampant in Seattle. And nobody wants to talk about that. But it's rampant in Seattle, and so so that there's another part of the culture has to change. The European Americans have to change on how they feel about us, because they make a lot of calls, and um, you know, Stucky can talk about it. <laughs> I mean, they make a lot of calls that uh, that uh, result in people who've been living on the block for 40 years. And just because all the black people are gone off the block now, and it's only one black house, and all her grandkids come on Sunday, so when they're leaving on Sunday night, the police has already been called because there's too many black people in that community. So that's another issue uh, uh, about changing cultures and uh, you know changing times and gentrification and all of that stuff that, that black people are dealing with in liberal Seattle. And uh, if, you, if you want proof of what Ms. Walden just said, just go on Nextdoor, you know, <laughs> take the Nextdoor app, and every time I notice, I notice a suspicious, in my neighborhood, there's a suspicious person in my neighborhood after I go for a jog. And it's just, <laughs> like, it just always happens. So, <laughs> it, so it's, what she's saying is fully true. Um, as the police officer in the room, she preaching, um, listen, because the reality is, I can tell you, I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone to community meetings and had to explain to people that because they saw a group of kids all wearing purple, that it wasn't a gang. It was just the kids coming from Garfield going to get lunch. <laughs> so us versus them um, is not just confined to the police. Um, uh, one more question. Looks like we have time for one more question. Um, and. I believe this is a question best for you, Officer Stuckey. Um, why should the police have a union? Um, I have simple. I'll tell you, and I can and look at anyone in their eye and say it, because I'm a worker, because this is my community. I put in work. And I, not only do I put on work, I put in my life. I will come out, this is my life. Not in the life that I plan on losing it, but this is because I have a calling for service. As a service to my community, that's why I'm here. That's why in the 50s, uh, the Seattle Police Officers Guild was founded in 1952. And that, in that time, we've had uh, two people of color who actually lead the police organization. One was Ken Saucier, who uh, unfortunately died in a car accident uh, after his uh, year and a half of being in office. And the other is me. I come from this community. I spent 23 years of my life here. That if I'm going to go out and do the things that you don't want other people to do, then I should have some protections. I should have, I should entitled to benefits and wages. This is not about being in a union or about what or everything. I know a lot of people think that the perception is, is that the contract um, stops this. We, the, the union is, is stopping reform. I'm part of the Community Police Commission. A lot of the policy change that occurred is the fact that myself, Reverend Walden, and other people from this community sat down and made those changes. 
There has not been any stumbling blocks from here. We may not always agree, but I've always, and I've said it and I'll say it again. If the community says that this is what they want, then this is what the community should have. When the community said we should have body cameras, it was, I sat down with them and said, okay, this, here's your pilot program. Because that's what the community wants. Whether I agreed with it or not, that's moot. If, again, if I-940 is passed, then we'll adapt and keep moving. I don't have to agree with it if that's what this community wants. So with that said is, I'm a member, so when you ask me why should a, a police officer have a union, why should you? Because you want those protections, because believe me, the culture change has started, and people are talking about the rank and file officers. Well, we've got to start talking about the people who gave them those orders, because that culture hasn't changed. Thank you. A, now I'm just gonna put that out there, I'm, I'm talking too long. We could, <laughs> we could talk about this for hours, um, but unfortunately we are out of time. Please give a round of applause for our panelists.